This is In Tune, the in-series podcast opening up to you your own in-series opera that speaks, theater that sings. An oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. I'm your host, Timothy Nelson, in-series artistic director, and I'm recording on November 8th, 2019. This is an in-depth episode where I'm going to dig into Berlioz's L'Enfance de Christ, which is the next production at in-series that'll be December 7th, 8th, and 14th, and it's in collaboration with Foundry United Methodist Church, which is 16th and P Street here in DC, and will be performed in their stunning and historic sanctuary. Uh, I can't believe that it's already November, and we've already done two shows at in series. Of course, we opened with Butterfly, which uh, played 16 times in two languages, uh, received amazing reviews, and we went straight into performances of Stormy Weather, which was, for those of you that missed it, a retelling of Shakespeare's Tempest from the perspective of Sycorax and the other enslaved African characters, Caliban and Ariel, all with the music and at the altar and with the inspiration of the great Billie Holiday. It was a new version written by Sybil Williams, and we were overwhelmed by the critical reception. Um, I don't think we've ever had such good reviews, and I could not have been prouder that uh, that we produced this new work. Uh, if you if you if you didn't get a chance to see it, we did uh, multi-camera videos of both it and of Butterfly. We're going to be offering those as as incentives in our holiday uh, appeal campaign, which will go out soon, so you can have a chance to get a record of both of those tremendous shows and tremendous performances by by local in-series artists. Uh, I don't usually make a plug for uh, other, other events going on in town, but I did want to mention I went last week to uh, the Otello, the Verdi Otello at uh, Washington National Opera, um, this was a very special performance because Othello, first of all, doesn't get done uh, a lot. And second of all, uh, because it starred Russell Thomas, who is uh, in his first Othello, who is a great African-American tenor. Um, and I have to say that his performance was unspeakably beautiful, so vulnerable, such a unique and personal way of approaching the role, both dramatically and musically. Um, and to see a, a, a black man in that role, which one doesn't uh, historically get to see on the opera stage, and of course there's been a lot of controversy about that role being one of the last vestiges of blackface, along with Aida, um, it made one read the piece in an entirely, um, with an entirely new awareness of how much race is a major factor, not only in the Shakespeare, which of course we knew, but, but in Otello's uh, late masterpiece. Um, I have to say, I, I I wondered about the wisdom of doing the old David Alden production uh, from the from uh, English National Opera. The the reason I I wonder about this is because Russell Thomas was so transfigurative in this role, um, and the piece became so much about. Uh, this black man's experience in a white world, um, and he and Desdemona's inability to um, to love each other free of race and religion, uh, and because the Washington National Opera, very rightly so, uh, said that they weren't going to do this piece until they had the right tenor, and that uh, it's not right to do this piece in blackface, of course, we've known this, and it's shocking that any company would still do that. Uh, and they waited until they had 
um, a great African-American tenor that they could cast in this role, which is so notoriously uh, difficult and, and um, near impossible to cast. Uh, but then to do it in a production that was designed for a white tenor that has nothing to do with race, I have to say I found that a bit troublesome. All that aside, his performance is stunning. The Desdemona is is some of the most exciting singing, Verdi singing that I've heard uh, in a long time live. The Iago had a placement in the voice and dramatically was riveting. Um, the whole thing was overwhelming, all gripes aside, and the piece itself most of all. If you haven't seen Othello live, if you don't know this opera, it is it is unlike anything else. It is worth going to see. Don't miss it. Um, and for those of you that saw it and might have a different opinion, please write me. Let me know. Let me know what I've said that's wrong. Um, uh, or let's 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 have a conversation about this because it's it's really important and beautiful that uh, a major company in our city is presenting this work and presenting it with such a a tremendous cast. Now, I told you today's an in-depth episode. I'm going to be talking about Berlioz's L'Enfance de Christ. Now, this is a, a, a oratorio, a concert piece that, that Berlioz wrote in 1854. Um, it is usually performed at Christmas time, um, and we are doing it. It's a piece I've wanted to do for a long time in collaboration with Foundry United Methodist Church. Uh, for those of you that don't know Foundry, it's based at 16th and P Street. It's a historic church. It was... Um, most notably the Church of the Clintons in the in the 90s. It is a church that is focused on justice seeking, that has a long history of seeking justice for all people, including uh, LGBTQ people, um, dealing with uh, the Methodist Church's complicated history with race, and uh, specifically at this time seeking justice for immigrants. Um, L'Enfance de Christ tells the story of the Massacre of the Innocents, which was uh, at the birth of Christ, the king of, of the Israelites had a dream of his power being taken from him by a child, and he, to avoid this, had all the newborn male children slaughtered, and uh, the angels appeared to Joseph and Mary just after the birth of Christ and told them to take the child out of out of the Holy Lands and into Egypt to hide him, where he stayed until um, till he was old enough to return safely. What this piece, of course, is really about, uh, in its skeletal form, is uh, the experience of families fleeing violence and persecution in their homeland, and going on an arduous, long journey, all to find radical and abundant hospitality in a new land when they arrived there. Uh, it's a piece that I had first wanted to do about 15 years ago uh, during the Darfur crisis, little uh, expecting at the time that this issue would become so prevalent in the American psyche and in the American narrative. Uh, and of course, it's very uh, topical to do, the, to do a piece like this now. Uh, it's unique, uh, the way we're approaching the piece is unique in that it is fully immersive, meaning the audience can choose and watch the piece, which will be in the foundry of uh, the Sanctuary of Foundry United Methodist Church, uh, in the round, 
but the performance will take place all over the space. So audiences can also choose to be part of a small moving group that is guided through the performance and will take on the roles in real time of the parents of the innocents, of the migrants on the journey, of uh, the welcomers, of the soothsayers, many different roles. Um, this is an exciting and, and for DC, an untried type of theater. I saw a piece last year, uh, the Shakespeare Julius Caesar staged at the Bridge Theater, which is Nicholas Heitner's new theater in London. Uh, which was just such a piece where we were all, as audience members, uh, at a political rally and we were guided around the space as, uh, as the narrative of, of Shakespeare's great political tragedy uh, unfolded. But okay, back to L'Enfance de Christ, which means the childhood of Christ, and it is by Hector Berlioz, who is one of the most uh, enigmatic and personal French composers with a sound and a, an approach to music really unlike the tradition where he was living in, which made him both hearken to the past and prescient to the future. Uh, the L'Enfance de Christ is a dramatic oratorio. It's in three parts. The first part is called The Dream of Herod, uh, and it depicts the massacre of the innocents as well as the angel's message to Mary and Joseph that they should flee with their child into Egypt to escape um, the violence. Uh, the second part portrays the journey into Egypt itself, uh, including um, the most famous piece, the piece that most people know from, from the work, which is the Farewell of the Shepherds. It's a chorus in three verses um, of the shepherds saying farewell to the Holy Family as they leave, and then a scene of the family resting on their way into Egypt. And the final part depicts the, the family's arrival into a city called uh, Sais, which is uh, Al-Sahagar in the, in the Arabic. It's a city in Egypt. Uh, and uh, this is uh, entirely an invention of, this isn't, this isn't biblical, it's entirely an invention of Berlioz, um, that they arrive in the city and they knock three times on three doors. At the first two doors, they are rejected by the inhabitants. Uh, and at the third door, they are welcomed by a family of, of Muslims. Ishmaelites, at least, uh, who care for them, who adopt them, who take them in for a time until it's safe for them to return to Nazareth. These three sections, which form the narrative, are preceded by a prologue and succeeded by an epilogue, uh, and those are sung um, by a narrator, who in some ways can be said to be the main character in the piece. He sings, it's a tenor role, a high tenor role. He sings uh, the prologue and the epilogue, but he also narrates the journey itself and provides a sort of window into the piece for the audience. The biblical source for the story comes from Matthew 2.13 through 18. Uh, and I want to read this in, much more for what's not in it than what is in it. Um, it begins, And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take your young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the child to destroy him. When Joseph arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord of the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, 
from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah there, there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Uh, this last reference, which is a quote from the book of Jeremiah from the Old Testament, um, reminds me of, a, of a, another retelling of the Massacre of the Innocents that I got to stage about 15 years ago, uh, which is an 11th century liturgical drama, which means it's entirely um, chant drama. It was, would have been performed in a church. We don't know who wrote it. Uh, and the piece is a depiction of the Massacre of the Innocents. But what makes it so interesting is that because Matthew in this verse refers to Jeremiah's, uh, uh, what the prophet Jeremiah says in terms of uh, a lamentation sung by Rachel for her children. Rachel was um, the wife of Jacob and, and mourned for the children of Israel. In the middle of this story of the massacre of the innocents, which of course takes place at the turn of BC into AC um, at the, the time of uh, the birth of Christ. Um, he, whoever the author of this piece was, inserts a, a, a major scene for a character from, from thousands of years earlier. And all the language in the piece is troped from the book of Revelations. So there's a totally new approach to dramaturgy here in which a piece taking place at one time contains a major scene for a character from thousands of years earlier, and all the language comes from uh, a time thousands of years in the future. Uh, it's, it's totally revolutionary. And in the same way as we'll see, Berlioz is playing with a time and new ways of experiencing dramaturgy and a dramatic arc in this piece. It's thought, of course, that there is no actual historic fact to the story of the Massacre of the Innocents. Uh, but rather the gospel is hinting at the death of the children of Israel by Pharaoh, which is the story of uh, Pharaoh uh, having had a dream that he would be uh, uh, ousted by, by a child, puts all the Is Israelite children to death, and Moses escapes this by his, his mother Miriam putting him in a basket. Um, the, the writers of the Gospels are troping this narrative, um, alluding to this narrative in the same way that, that we do all the time. And it's in this process that history becomes myth, that truth becomes allegory. Um, the Bible, in the same way, makes no mention of the Holy Family taking a rest on their way to Egypt. If you notice in that story, there's nothing about that. Uh, but that scene of the family at rest on the way to Egypt has become probably the most painted part of, of this story in the, in the history of, of medieval and Renaissance and even um, going into Baroque art. Uh, it's a scene painted over and over again, and yet there's no, there's no uh, allusion to it in, in the Bible, which I, I find terribly, terribly interesting, and we'll come back to that uh, a little later. The story of how Berlioz came to write the piece is very interesting, uh, and I'll, I'll just I'll just read a bit. This one evening in 1850, Berlioz found himself at a party, and everyone was playing cards. And this is not something that Berlioz uh, approved of. He wasn't a very religious man, 
He certainly wasn't uh, morally conservative. Uh, he just didn't like cards and didn't approve of it. And so while he's there and everyone um, is, is playing cards, his friend Pierre Duc sees that he's bored and gives him a napkin to, to write on. And Berlioz in his journal says, I take a piece of paper and I scribble a few staves on which a four-part andantino for organ appears. It seems to have a rustic character and to suggest a naive mystical feeling. So at once I think of writing appropriate words to it. The organ piece disappears and becomes a chorus of shepherds in Bethlehem bidding farewell to the child Jesus as the Holy Family leaves for Egypt. I love that this is the origin of the sacred trilogy, uh, L'Enfance de Christ, or what would become that, that the germ of it is uh, just a few bars written in pure music with not a plot, not a story, no words, those only came after. Uh, and then like ripples, the composition of the whole spread outwards from the central point. So what's, what he's writing at this party is the La Dieu des Bergères, which is the, the Farewell of the Shepherds, the most famous piece. It takes place at the very center of L'Enfance de Christ. That's the first thing he wrote. Uh, and then he says, a few days later, I wrote The Repose of the Holy Family, which follows. The time beginning with, this time beginning with words and a little fugal overture in F-sharp minor with a flattened leading note. Not exactly modal, more like plain chant, which academics will tell you is derived from the Phrygian or the Dorian or the Lydian modes of ancient Greece. This has nothing to do with it. All that matters is that it has a melancholy and slightly simple character as in ancient popular laments. So what Berlioz is saying that he's that he wrote the first bit, the Farewell of the Shepherds, then he added uh, a little overture before that, and he added a, a little description of the Holy Family's rest into Egypt after that. And that was the original piece. It was in three parts, uh, consisting of an overture, the farewell of the shepherds, and the rest of the Holy Family on the way into Egypt. He programs this new piece he's written on a concert. Now, Berlioz was the librarian for the uh, for the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, and he programmed a concert, he included this piece, and he told the public that it was by an obscure 17th century French composer named Pierre Ducre. Now, he made this entirely up. It was, of course, by him. Uh, he wanted to test and see uh, how uh, musically knowledgeable and astute the audience was. Well, they weren't. The prank worked. Uh, it was an utter success. Everyone uh, believed that uh, whoever this Pierre Ducre was, he, he was a fantastic composer. And Berlioz was so despondent at the lack of musical sensitivity and knowledge of the audience that he decided right then and there to stop composing. Uh, he vowed uh, never to compose again, that the people weren't ready for his music. Uh, and he didn't compose again. That's 1850. In 1853, um, he was in Germany, and he uh, programmed that same piece, The Flight into Egypt, this time saying that it was his own, uh, in a concert. Uh, he hadn't written any new music. Um, and uh, it, was, it, it, was, it was a great success. And um, some friends of his that were at the concert suggested, why don't you expand this? into a larger piece. And so Berlioz decided again to write music, uh, and the piece he decided to write was L'Enfance de Christ, based on this. And to that central panel, he added a first panel uh, depicting the dream of Herod, and a final panel depicting the uh, arrival into Saïs, into Egypt, and a prologue and an epilogue.
Now I keep using the word panel, and I'll tell you why I do this. Uh, Berlioz conceived of the work, and indeed the work is a musical triptych. Uh, what is a triptych? A triptych is a form of polyptych um, in three sections. Um, it doesn't necessarily refer to art, but is usually thought of as a work of art in three um, pieces that are related to each other in terms of narrative or um, material. Uh, and we mostly think of it in terms of religious artwork from uh, the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages, the Gothic period, on into, even into the Romantic period, um, Rubens had triptychs. Um, that have a central panel, two side panels, and very often in the traditional triptych, those side panels can close and cover the central panel and, and form one piece that then unfolds when it's ready for, for observation. Um, it's not unique to the Christian tradition, I should say, though. Um, the number three, of course, is very important in um, the cosmology of, of uh, Hindu saints, in Buddhism, also in Judaism, if you think of the way the Torah is, is stored, uh, and, and even in, in Islam, um, in Hinduism, of course, it's very, it's very much part of it. And I remember seeing um, on the island of Elephanta, which is off of, off of Mumbai, um, there's a great sculpture, which is a single head with three faces. One face is uh, Brahma, one face is Vishnu, and one face is uh, Shiva, um, and it's the same sort of trinity exploration. So the number three becomes um, quite quite important, and that's probably why triptychs arose to have such a influence in, in the history of Western church art. Berlioz's L'Enfance de Christ is a musical triptych. Um, the, the thing about a triptych is it, it doesn't just have uh, effect because of the number three and the importance of the Trinity, but there's also a physiological phenomenon in the observation of a triptych. And, and what happens is the eye begins instantly, intuitively, to look at the center of the piece. Then, um, particularly for those cultures um, which read from left to right, um, the eye forces itself to move to the leftmost panel and to read across from left, center, to right. Then after that, the eye again lands at center. What this means is that one looks first at the image at the center, then one understands the image at the center better by reading it from left to right, and then when one one's eye arrives back at the center, one understands the impact of that image based on what one has seen in the side. Another way to say it is that the center of the triptych makes sense out of the outer panels, and the outer panels amplify the meaning and the relevance of the central panel. Uh, when one lands back at the center panel on the end, one is sort of in a, a liminal space. And what I mean is that one is looking at the center, but psychologically aware of the context, um, the spiritual context of the outer pieces. Uh, now, I gave this talk uh, a couple weeks ago at Foundry United Methodist, and I had some visual aids, which I don't have now, but, um, but I'll, I'll talk about a few of those. For instance, uh, one was the uh, Isenbrandt triptych, which in the center uh, 
has the uh, the the mother with child, the Madonna enthroned with child. So it, even though it's it's the Virgin Mary holding the Christ child, it takes place um, at the end times in 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 all the glory of of, of the celestial heavens. Um, on the left side, the left panel is John the Baptist pointing the way, of course, pointing towards Christ as John the Baptist does. Uh, and on the rightmost panel is St. Jerome writing uh, the Gospels. Jerome is famous for having um, uh, translated the Gospels um, and the, the way that the, the uh, scriptures come down to us in modern times. So one looks first in this instance at the mother and the child and then one looks at John the Baptist and understands what came, what led into the, uh, the nativity and the birth of Christ. And one then looks across and sees Jerome and thinks of how it came down to us in the future. And then the eye lands again on the mother and the child, but the, but the significance of mother with child is now made more clear. And the reason that John and Jerome exist is also made clear. Um, by extension, there's another contemporary triptych that that uh, that I showed, which is um, honoring Emmett Till. In the centerpiece is Mamie Till holding the lifeless body of her son Emmett Till. It is a Pietà. On the left-hand side is a panel depicting the violent murder and drowning of Emmett Till, and on the right-hand side. There is the funeral of Emmett Till with legions of black and white protesters also depicted as mourners. So one sees first mother with child, one then sees the horrible violence that led to that, and one sees uh, what came out of it on the other side, uh, both sorrow but also um, struggle that led to new new rights and new justice and an awakening in in the the american spirit which is of course still yet to be realized um, and then the eye lands back on mamie till with her son uh, but one understands the significance of that death and the horror of that death and uh, what it came to symbolize and the movement that it created um, in, an, in a new way so that that is a, how a triptych works in just that way, I want to look at Berlioz's Montmartre de Christ just so. So we'll start in the middle first, then we'll go to the outer panels. Uh, the, the, the middle, as I said, the very middle of the piece is the most famous uh, uh, choral movement that, that most choral scholars would know, um, the Farewell of the Shepherds. Uh, it is um, meaningful to me that it was, it was composed first as pure music without words. Um, it in and of itself is in three parts. Um, so at the very center of the piece is, uh, is a strophic hymn, strophic meaning three verses. The first verse depicts uh, the scenario that Joseph, Mary, and Christ are fleeing, they must leave. The second verse, which I'll remind you, is the absolute middle of the piece. The third verse asks that Christ at the end times will bless his father and his mother. And the second verse, so right in the middle of those third verses, is a, a beautiful poetic phrase saying that if Christ suffers um, violence or unkindness in his new home, 
then he may return, then he may travel to his original home. Um, so again, that's the very middle of the piece, and what it is exploring is the strangeness of home, that home is not um, a place, but a place that we decide for it to be, that in the we expect the poem to say that um, if he experiences uh, violence there, he may travel to a new place, but what's actually saying is if he experiences violence in a new place, he may travel home. It's playing with home as a cyclical thing, and indeed the whole work experiences time, home, place, as cycles rather than as straightforward narrative. That's in the very middle of a three-verse uh, chorus. That chorus is in the middle of a three-movement three panel. Um, so we have sort of telescoping triptychs in the piece. Uh, before that um, chorus comes a an overture, which is in A minor. The chorus itself is in E major. And then following that chorus is the narrator telling us about the scene of the Holy Family uh, resting on their way to Egypt, which is again in A minor. So it's, it's a palindrome, A minor, E major, A minor. Um, this this scene of the Holy Family resting is 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 really interesting to me because it's not in the Bible, but it is the most painted scene, um, and uh, it depicts shepherds, uh, Mary, Joseph, the child. There's angels there. Um, it is a nativity scene. It is everything about the imagery is would awaken in the mind scenes of the nativity. Uh, but of course, this is not a story that takes place at the birth of Christ. This takes place after the birth of Christ, and it's a story that would normally be meditated upon during uh, Epiphany, during the season after Christmas. Uh, and what's so special about that is that the piece is is alluding to nativity, making us think of nativity, uh, meditate upon it, um, and teaching us that nativity is not a place nor is it a time, but it is a sense, it is a feeling, it takes place um, all the time, it is, an in, it is an infinity in a sense. Uh, the, the, this resting of the Holy Family doesn't appear in the Bible, but there are many apocryphal sources for it, and one of the most beautiful and um, I think poignant apocryphal stories is that on the way to Egypt, Mary is, is very tired, um, she sees a piece of fruit hanging in a tree. She asks Joseph for this piece of fruit. He tries, he scrambles up the tree, he can't get it. He reaches, he can't get it. He says, Mary, I can't, I'm too tired. I, can we just keep moving? Um, and at that moment, I imagine when the couple, tired, hungry, are about to have a fight, uh, the newborn child laughs. And when the child laughs, the tree itself bends down and offers its fruit to uh, to the babe who takes the fruit and gives it to his mother. Um, this is depicted a lot in art. Um, there's some Gothic stained glass windows, which which I, I showed in my talk about it. But my most famous favorite depiction of it is from the Giotto uh, frescoes in Assisi, uh, where there's a, a, a fresco of the uh, mother on, on the donkey being led by Joseph, and behind them is a palm tree bending over. Um, to give its fruit. Uh, it's, it's a really beautiful image. There's also a wonderful Van Eyck depiction that I, I saw once of the Holy Family resting on the way to Egypt, and above it uh, are the Trinity, so um, 
depiction of the Father of Christ and the dove is the Holy Spirit. And below the Holy Family is a little tiny snail family, father, mother, child, who are also resting on their journey. So there's this beautiful telescoping from Holy Trinity to Holy Family to little family of snails, uh, which is very much uh, in the spirit of the way Berlioz treats this. So this is the center panel. Then Berlioz writes the, uh, the first panel which is the dream of Herod. Uh, this uh, panel opens with, which is the opening of the piece after the prologue, a long instrumental piece. This Berlioz um, wrote these concert works like Damnation de Faust, also like Romeo and Juliet, that have a lot of instrumental music depicting a scene, in a sense, a, um, uh, a musical portrait or a tone poem like Strauss would write. Uh, this is a nocturnal march. We hear the uh, Romans marching and it takes place late at night, and then all of a sudden there are two soldiers that mistake each other, they, they scare each other, then they have a conversation about why they're there, um, and they say they're there because something's wrong in the kingdom, and Herod is having dreams and can't sleep, um, and then the march continues. Um, if that sounds at all familiar, um, it, it should, because Berlioz was a great admirer, as much as Verdi was, of Shakespeare. Verdi only, um, uh, Berlioz only wrote one real opera based on Shakespeare, which is um, Beatrice uh, Benedict, which I think is based on All's Well That Ends Well. Um, he then wrote, of course, Romeo and Juliet, also based on the Shakespeare. He loved Shakespeare, and this is very clearly a reference to the opening of Hamlet. Um, it then grows into uh, a solo scene of Herod, alone in the castle, tormented by his dreams, unable to sleep. Uh, and what's so brilliant about this scene is Berlioz depicts Herod quite sympathetically. Um, the, the text talks about how he longs for an hour of peace, how um, heavy is the head that wears the crown, another Shakespearean reference. Um, uh, about how hard it is to be a king. In fact, the, the name of the famous aria is Oh, the Misery of Kings. Um, we feel sorry for, for this man. And again, so much of this piece is about bowing before a triptych. A triptych should be bowed before. And this opening is all about how hard it is for those with wealth and power and privilege to be able to, to bow. Uh, at the end of this long aria, uh, the centurion comes and, or Polydorus, who's one of the Roman soldiers, comes and tells Herod that the soothsayers have arrived. And so uh, Berlius has replaced the wise men with soothsayers. The soothsayers come, there's a Kabbalistic dance that they perform in, in uh, alternating measures of 4-4 four, four, and 3-4, which is really quite innovative for the time in which he wrote it. Uh, and at the end of that dance, uh, Herod gives them his dream, and they say, oh, it doesn't look good for you. Um, for sure, this is true. The child will be born. He will take away your power. You will lose everything. And then suddenly this, uh, this man for whom we've had great sympathy up to this point uh, flips, and um, there's a, a rage aria and chorus in which he demands that the, all the children uh, must die uh, violently. Um, the Massacre of the Innocents, of course, is um, 
is a very much much painted uh, scene in in Renaissance and Baroque art. And I I think of Ghirlandaio, whose Massacre of the Innocents is in the um, Santa Maria Novella in in Florence, right outside the train station. Uh, and my very favorite. Um, depiction of this is, is Giotto in the Scrivani Chapel in Padova, uh, which has such pain on the faces of, of, the, of the mothers as their children are taken away. Um, no one could paint that uh, in the way that, that, um, that Giotto could. Uh, and after this, still in the first part, is a scene of the Holy Family with the child. The angels come to them and tell them to depart. Um, now, now a couple of things I want to say about this first part. Like the second part, it's also in three movements. There's a nocturnal march um, at the beginning. There's the scene in Herod's uh, chamber with him and then the soothsayers. And there's the final scene of the Holy Family being told to flee by the angels. Uh, this is a triptych itself. In, it's a mini triptych in three parts, just like the second movement is a mini triptych in three parts. Uh, the other thing I want to point out is at the end of the second movement, uh, which is the end of the rest, uh, the resting in Egypt, the angels sing a short chorus of Alleluia. Uh, and I'll come back to this later. At the end of this movement, the first movement, uh, after the, uh, the Holy Family has departed as they're leaving, the angels sing a chorus of Hosanna. Now, the last part that, that Berlioz wrote is the third movement. And it won't surprise you at this point to learn that it is also uh, in three movements, uh, or the three, three, yeah, three movements to this third panel. The the first part is uh, the journey uh, of the Holy Family um, uh, into 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 Egypt in the Sais, um, and they knock three times. Um, on three doors. This should sound familiar because, of course, he is referencing uh, the magic flute. Uh, Mary and Joseph are depicted in the rain, in the storm. Uh, the text says, only Mary complained not, which again is troping the nativity story in Luke, where Luke says that only Mary stayed silent and kept these things in her heart and pondered them. Um, Here's the same thing, except they're, and again, they're knocking on doors, trying to find someone to let them in. Again, it's troping the nativity story and saying this is a nativity story, even though it doesn't take place uh, as part of the Christmas story itself. Uh, the third door opens, and then we're into the second part of this panel. Uh, in the second movement, out comes a character named Père, uh, which just means father in French, and he welcomes the family. He says... Um, he, he, he offers them radical hospitality and says that they are safe. And he does this in a very particular order, which, which I think is meaningful. He first gives them what they need, no questions asked. He gives them blankets, he gives them food, he gives them things to drink. Then they have a com conversation, they share stories, they share their names, they see each other as human beings. Um, in that process, uh, the father says, um, we are ch children of Ishmael, we are Ishmaelites, but you are children of, of Isaac, uh, and we are, all, we are all one, and of course you'll have family. They also find that they're both carpenters. So the father says, uh, 
you may stay and we will start a carpentry practice together and we will raise your son to be a carpenter. Um, so it gives the implication that the Christ was, was, um, was raised up by a family and a village and a larger uh, extended community. Um, and then, the, the, then after they share stories, he offers them um, rest. And then there's a beautiful moment where he sees Mary weeping and he says, woman, you are weeping. And we expect him to say, stop crying. There's no reason to cry. You're safe now. But he doesn't say that. He says, weep on, keep weeping. So he recognizes that um, there has been a deep trauma, pain, and that is his right to mourn that. And there is no um, reason for that pain and suffering not to be fully and totally acknowledged. Uh, this third part is totally Berlioz's imagination. This doesn't include. This doesn't occur anywhere in the text. We don't know anything uh, sources for it other than that Berlioz, who wrote his own text, um, decided that he would lay out the path that hospitality um, and comfort, compassion should be offered to the stranger, to the foreigner. It's 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 an amazing an amazing thing. Um, but but the piece and, and, and the piece ends with um, and I'll come back to this angels singing now amen at the end. Um, the 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 way in which it's a triptych is is not yet complete though, because uh, as I said earlier, a triptych is not just art in three parts, but it's art that closes up and is one. It is a trinity in the in the real sense that it is three in one. Uh, in the same way, Berlioz includes a prologue and an epilogue that replicate the experience of the triptych. So that prologue starts with uh, the recitant, the narrator, saying, I'm going to tell you a story. It is a story of a time when um, the land was covered in darkness. Men's heart were hearts were covered in darkness. And he says, in that darkness, hope blossomed forth from the from the hearts of the afflicted um, and the music and I, I wish I could play it for you here but the music uh, depicts the opening of the triptych slowly the doors open and we gaze upon the images and what are the images the images the image that we first see will be which is the center of the piece is uh, a nativity it is uh, the the Holy Family with the shepherds, with the angels um, gathered uh, around and then going on a journey. And then we see Herod on the left-hand side and on the right-hand side, we see um, the, the Holy Family being welcomed into Egypt. And just so at the end, he does an amazing epilogue, which begins with seven notes that aren't related to each other. They're not in the same tonal system. It's almost atonal music. And then the narrator begins to close the piece and he says, thus from the hands, by the hands of an unbeliever was the savior of the world saved. Uh, which of course is beautiful and lets us know that we'd have no idea what the kindness we do, we do in the world um, ultimately um, does, the journey it takes, the, the way it um, reproduces and resonates throughout the all the lives that that we touch and that those whose lives we've touched then touch um, that's what he's saying here and then he speaks to his heart and he says oh my heart 
bow before the beauty of this story. And again, we're back to this idea of bowing, of being able to say there is a power greater than me, um, that I, I am not in charge. And the piece ends with, with the angels singing Amen. Uh, now, if you look at these three angel calls, at the end of the first section, they sing Hosanna. At the end of the second section, they sing Alleluia. And at the end of the third section, they sing Amen. Uh, Hosanna uh, means um, celebration. It is what is sung by the angels at the birth of Christ. It is, uh, it is a call for um, uh, sacred celebration. Alleluia is a very particular word that is saved for after the resurrection. It is um, the, the acknowledgement in sound, in, in word, that we are saved. And amen, of course, means so be it. So within this triptych, hidden in a triptych, hidden in a triptych, that depicts this story of the saving of the savior of the world is also the saving of the entire world through the structure of, of Christ's life with Hosanna, Alleluia, Amen. It is a mega piece, the L'Enfance de Christ. It is brilliant on so many levels. It's a type of music that is utterly personal and hard to describe without listening to it. Berlioz's music sounds like no one else. And in L'Enfance de Christ, he was really able to stretch the borders of, of music and of dramaturgy. Um, and, and it also plays with time, that time doesn't need to be chronological, that time can be cyclical, that we can view a piece in the middle first and the understanding of the outside better because we've seen the middle and understand the middle better because we've seen the outside. It is at the same time deeply human, deeply convicting, um, and and I hope that you'll join us for the performances. These are December 7th and 8th uh, and December 14th at Foundry United Methodist Church. We were doing a lot of extra outreach for this piece. So I just want to say we're doing free lean-in sessions, which are chances to um, learn more about the pieces or the themes around it. Uh, we had one a couple weeks ago. We have another one this Sunday with uh, Reverend Mark Schaefer at 1230 at Foundry United Methodist Church. This Sunday we'll be discussing uh, faith and justice and how faith calls us to acts of holy, holy justice-seeking. Uh, the week after, we'll be having a session with uh, a Sufi practitioner of whirling who will teach this, not only the significance of whirling and Sufi uh, repetitive action that, that encourages um, sacred trance states, but we'll also have a chance to practice the whirling dervish. So I hope you'll come out for that. That's next Sunday, the uh, 17th, also at 1230 at Foundry, completely free. And the final uh, Sunday, the 24th, again at 12.30, again completely free, will be a session looking at faith and art and how art can be a spiritual practice uh, for um, refining faith, a refiner's fire for faith through, through art. We'll also have our director's salon. That'll be the evening of November the 20th. Um, you can find more details on our website, www.inseries.org. 
There are also a few ways that you can participate in the making of L'Enfance. We're still looking for volunteers that want to be guides. These guides will have a, um, an artistic and I dare say spiritual experience staging the piece, learning the blocking, and guiding the audience through those. We'll meet on Saturdays and Sundays throughout the month of November and then the week of the performances. You can find more information online, but you can also email our wonderful outreach coordinator, Kara Gonzalez. That's Kara, C-A-R-A, at InSeries. Org. Uh, that's all for this this week's episode. Um, I hope you've learned something new. I hope you're excited about the Berlioz. We're thrilled to be able to offer it. Uh, and I hope to see you at the theater. Remember, Rabindranath Tagore tells us that civility is the first and fundamental work of art. We work this week to make our lives more civil and through that civility to make greater works of art. <laughs>